going to begin tonight. Uh, we're in a, a, a series talking about the Holy Spirit for the next uh, several weeks. I don't really know how long. We'll see. Um, but we're going to begin with something I think you probably have all just like hoped we would do, which is a short lesson in philosophy. So, I know. You're welcome. Uh, Immanuel Kant. How many of you have heard that name? Cool. He's an 18th century philosopher. Um, known primarily for his ethics, uh, but he did a number on epistemology, which is the theory or the study of like how, how we know things. And he argued, I'm, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying it's wrong, I think it's right, but I'm trying to like condense uh, like complicated stuff that I really had to try to figure out. So if you Google it and you're like, that was wrong, you're right, sorry. Um, he argued that there's a thing and then there's our perception of the thing. Um, the thing as it appears to us. We can make observations about what we see, but it may or may not be accurate to what the thing actually is. He called, the thing that we can see is phenomena, and the thing that it actually is is called a noumena. And now you're all thinking about that commercial, and you're welcome. Um, so according to his logic, the only things that we can actually know are the things that create a phenomena. We can't actually know the thing itself. We can only know the things that make it what it is and as it appears to us. So essentially, things like math and science and the observable, repeatable things of nature, the things that make the world do what it does, those are the things that we can confidently know, says Kant. Um, so anything outside of the natural, like physical, observable world, we can't know. He's not dismissing it as falsehood, but just that we can't know it. So he essentially split human knowledge into two areas, things that we can, things that we can't know. We can't know about God, our human soul, our morality. We can just experience them. Um, we can know things like math and the laws of nature and so on. So again, an extreme simplification of Kant's epistemology. But I share it because it makes sense and it has led to uh, a philosophy that our culture is steeped in right now at this moment, which is called philosophical naturalism. Carl Sagan is a prolific scientist in the 70s and 80s, and he said in his book called Cosmos, which I think was made into like a little mini educational like movie or something, he said the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. This is like the John 316 of philosophical naturalism. The idea is that all that can be known, all that is real is natural and physical. It's a, it can be observed by a microscope or a telescope, our eyes, our ears, our other senses, and it can be understood by means of like the scientific method. And in other words, he would say, and naturalism would say, there is nothing supernatural, nothing over what is natural, because that would mean it isn't natural. On the other end, same perspective, but from a different angle, one of my favorite songwriters, his name is Benjamin Gibbard uh, from a band called Death Cab for Cutie. He writes these lyrics. He's equally as smart as Carl Sagan, don't worry. Um, in his song, St. Peter's Cathedral, he says, at St. Peter's Cathedral, there is stained glass. There's a steeple that is reaching up towards the heavens, such ambition never failing to amaze me. It's either quite a master plan or just chemicals that help us understand that when our hearts stop ticking, this is the end and there's nothing past this. It captures naturalism and naturalism's perspective on religion. Maybe it's some beautiful plan 
or maybe it's just chemicals in our brain that are trying to help us be okay with this life that we find ourselves in, and there's nothing beyond the natural world. If it can't get more depressing, another songwriter I like, his name is Noah Gunderson. He writes this in his song, Empty from the Start, which you know is not gonna be a happy song. Uh, He says, this is all we have, this is all we are. Blood and bones, no Holy Ghost, empty from the start. Two examples from kind of my realm of culture and music and art that capture a form of philosophical naturalism, and they also capture atheism and sadness. Um, But philosophical naturalism, is the very air that we breathe. You might think it's oxygen and nitrogen and whatever else, it's actually philosophical naturalism. My generation, maybe our, our generation now might seem interested in the spiritual, but I think it's because it's a form of therapy, like breathing exercises, mindfulness and yoga. It's not actually like defection from naturalism, it's, it's a kind of medicine for us to take the so-called supernatural or the spiritual realm as real, as legitimate, to take it seriously is seen as a dated and archaic uh, way of life. And maybe people think it's like our own version of therapy. A kind naturalist might say Christianity isn't real in all that it says, but maybe it's helpful for you in, in dealing with your life. Maybe it's helpful to go on as if you were confident that this is all real. Um, And the handful of conversations I had uh, with friends about faith system, religion, spirituality, when they don't believe what I believe, they're almost always nice. And they say something like, I'm glad you have that in your life. It seems like it helps you. But it's not an admission that it's actually fundamentally real. Unfortunately, the evidence also suggests that even professing Christians sometimes think of the world in this way, in a naturalistic way. Uh, in his, his work on examining the faith and the spiritual lives of people in my generation, uh, Christian Smith, he's a professor of sociology at Notre Dame, compiled his research in a book called Soul Searching, which is very good. And he summarized his findings of what millennials believe it means to, to be a Christian. Um, and he categorized it as moralistic, therapeutic deism. So we think Being a Christian, I think it actually applied to millennials in other religions as well. Um, But we think of it as being moralistic, that we need to do good. We need to be good and do the right things to be religious. And it is a form of therapy, a way to help us feel better about ourselves, about our lives. Because though God may be real, he may not necessarily like be actively involved in our everyday lives, which is what deism means. So that, hopefully, is not what you believe, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. But when he asked, Christian Smith asked these good questions of people in our generation, this was by and large the sentiment of people who proclaimed to believe in Jesus and trust the Bible. God may have set the universe in motion, but he's not that involved anymore, except for when I need him for something. But when I don't want him involved in an area of my life, he can just stay where he is. Thank you very much. He wants us to be good. And if we are good, we might just feel okay as humans and maybe get to go to heaven when we die. I bring all of this up, hopefully, to make the point that whatever you say you believe about God, about the spiritual realm, the Holy Spirit, for our purposes today, uh, we are swimming in a culture that is predisposed to dismiss the very spiritual and non-physical realities that the scriptures take very seriously. So philosophical naturalism is the pool that we're all swimming in and the good clean water of scripture that we want to drink is in a glass outside the pool. 
But it's, we all know it's impossible not to ingest pool water when you're in it, which is gross. We may inadvertently be letting cultural philosophies dilute our belief in the scriptures or at least uh, make us feel skeptical or ashamed about certain parts of the scriptures. It's worth noting that this dilemma we find ourselves in is primarily modern and Western. Um, many other parts of the world do not uh, subscribe to philosophical naturalism, but are actually very open, perhaps steeped in a robust belief system in the supernatural, a world of spiritual beings, but that's not us, that's not where we live. And so, we are attempting to talk about and understand something that is on two fronts going against um, our culture. It's theistic, it's about God, it's presuming that there's a God who's real, who loves us and is at work in this world. And two, it's spiritual, it's non-physical, it's invisible. So we're talking about God existing as spirit. I'm gonna throw one more wrench into the mess before we actually talk about it. We're asking these questions, thinking about God as spirit in the midst of an ongoing spiritual battle. Think of the upside down from Stranger Things, if you guys are fans of that. An alternate dimension of sorts that is kind of like overlaid on top of the dimension of that show. It's invisible when you're in one dimension, you can't see the other one, but it's real. There's beings in it, there's... <laughs> you're right. Isn't there a rule, like if something is certain, like certain number of years back, you don't have to like do spoiler warnings? Yeah. That's a naturalistic rule. <laughs> nice, well done. Uh, a real world that you can't see in the moment, but it is very much uh, real and it, and it affects you to this day. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's actually helpful. So imagine while we sit here in these pews in a nearly 100-year-old church, imagine if you're comfortable with it, the upside down of this very space. But it's not dark and red and slimy with cool retro synth music playing. Uh, in this case, I wonder if it might look like a war zone with like an enemy line and trenches and machine guns and bullet casings and the smell of gun smoke and the distant rumble of explosions, the sound of screams and orders to push forward or fall back happening in languages uh, that we've never heard. Um, there is a category of reality that is not natural. Uh, at least not in our modern sense of that word. It's not physical, but that does not mean that it's not real. And in it are beings that are trying to destroy you. And there are other beings that are trying to stop those ones from destroying you, trying to save us. And it's all happening now, not up in the heavens, out like by the moon or Jupiter, but in the upside down, so to speak, what the, the scriptures call the spiritual realm. So the irony is that we're gonna be talking about a category of being that is not physical or visible, a category of being which our culture does not believe uh, exists, and which other beings of that category, other spiritual beings, are trying to get us to not believe in or trying to get us to dis, uh, dismiss or misunderstand. So the odds are not in our favor, uh, and I think the enemy would love for us to dismiss or disregard the Holy Spirit. Just the fact, bringing it up right now, I think, is making some people in the upside down angry. And I think the tactic of 
getting us to not think about the Holy Spirit has worked, at least in our camp of Christianity, American evangelicals, unless you're from a charismatic or a Pentecostal background, we don't talk much about the Holy Spirit. Um, doesn't mean that the Spirit isn't working, uh, just that maybe we might not be aware that he is the one who is working. All of this introduction <laughs> at length, I'm hoping to establish the importance and the, maybe the weightiness of talking about the Holy Spirit and who he is, what his role is in our life and in the church. Um, and so the, what, what I wanna do um, is start with something called biblical theology. Um, I don't wanna categorize, here's all the facts that we know about the Holy Spirit and then you can say check, yes, I've heard that, I've heard that before, cool. I wanna do it in a different way, which means that we need to try to not import our pre-understanding of the Holy Spirit back into these verses that we're gonna read in the Bible. We wanna try to kind of imagine that we don't know much, that we're reading the Bible fresh for the first time. And we wanna let the unfolding story of the Bible reveal, in this case, the Holy Spirit to us afresh. So set aside your systematic theology. I know you have your books out, your theology books, just put them away. Um, set aside for a moment, I know it sounds crazy, your knowledge about the Trinity um, and just let the text be what it is. Um, you may open your Bibles to Genesis 1 if you want to. If you don't want to, um, we're gonna read it in a moment. Um, and we're gonna start in Genesis 1 and then as quickly as I can, weave this thread um, through the Old Testament. We'll end at Pentecost and we'll stop at some kind of key moments along the way. Um, I'm hoping we end up at a place of like fresh appreciation and wonder for the Holy Spirit. Um, but like I said, I, I wanna try to um, set aside what we know and let the word do its work, set aside our categories. I kinda want us to be off guard a little bit. Um, so much so that uh, you can read it on your Bible if you want to, but I'm, we're not gonna read it in English uh, out loud. Now, lest you be threatened to be impressed by a Hebrew reading of Genesis 1, 1 and 2, please know that I had to practice a lot to read it. Um, were we to continue reading past the second verse, I would sound like a kindergartner trying to sound out words, and I maybe would know like a third of them. Um, but these first two sentences in our Bible are incredibly important, and uh, God's people have memorized these exact words for thousands of years, and so I think there may be something special about reading them as they were written um, in this place, in this moment. So you can follow along in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 if you'd like. These are the word of God as, as God's people have heard them and read them for a long time. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. V'ha'aretz hayata tohu vavohu v'choshek alpene tohom. V'ruach Elohim Mirachefet alpene hamayim. This is Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Bereshit, in the beginning, bara created Elohim God. Hebrew likes to put the verb first and then the subject of the sentence next. So in the beginning, God created et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. He created the heavens and the land or the earth. Hashemayim is heavens and ha'aretz is land or earth. When we have those two words sandwiched together in this 
way. It's called a merism. It's a figure of speech where these two kind of opposing parts or extreme ends are referred to next to each other to represent the whole. If you are familiar with other figures of speech, it's like a synecdoche. So I believe because of that, it's saying God created everything. And I think that this first verse is like a, a title line or a preview of what's to come. God made everything, says Genesis 1.1, and then here's how it went, moving on to verse two. V'ha'aretz, and the land, hayata tohu vavohu, the land was tohu vavohu. Someday soon, uh, we're gonna teach through Genesis. Um, we'll spend more time on these two words because they're very cool, but for now, the idea is that the land was like an uninhabitable wasteland. Matter existed already, but this land where they were uh, was not suitable for humans. Chaotic, uh, without form or void or other ways that it's translated. It's, it's dangerous. It's not suitable for humans. But this is about to change. V'choshech al to home. Choshek is darkness, alpine, over the top or over the surface of tahom, the watery deep. Scholars think this word tahom or watery deep refers to some kind of like primeval, epic saltwater ocean. It's just covered in darkness and it is scary and foreboding to say the least. But then we get to the verse that we're looking for. The ruach Elohim, the spirit or the wind the breath of God, Elohim, God, Murachefet, is hovering or floating, moving, Alpene Hamayim, over the face of the water. The word Murachefet um, is a verb, and it actually has another use that's very helpful in understanding what this Ruach Elohim is doing. It's in Deuteronomy 32. We're not going to turn there, but. Moses is kind of singing this song of praise about God's deliverance and God's providence over Israel as they're wandering through the desert. And he describes God as caring for Israel like an eagle that is gliding and circling over its young and its nest so that he can take care of them and watch over them. So it's, I think part of that idea is what's happening here with the spirit of God, with the Ruach Elohim, he is hovering over, kind of brooding over uh, this part of the world that is chaotic and um, not suitable for humans. But the word that we want to focus on that I'm gonna say so many times today is ruach. Can you say ruach? It's okay if you have to clear some stuff out of your throat after. Is the Hebrew word for wind or breath meaning the wind that can come out of you uh, or the wind that can go in and fill you with oxygen or with life. Tim Mackey is a Hebrew scholar, creator of the Bible Project, describes kind of the ancient Hebrew understanding of ruach as wind, the invisible force that moves the clouds or makes tree branches sway, but also as the vitality and energy we get from taking a deep breath. Take a deep breath and then do you know how to like make sure like feels like it gets up into your brain where you just like through your nose, you're just like... Take a deep breath. Straight, pure ruach right there, just right into your system. <laughs> and so we have hovering, fluttering over the waters of this chaotic wasteland, this ruach Elohim, Elohim, in this case, the, the name for God. So the wind, the breath, the life energy of God is here, present, 
before the formation of this land, like an athlete kind of pacing on the sideline before jumping into the game, or like a bird soaring, encircling its nest to keep it safe. This Ruach Elohim is hovering over this area of the cosmos that God is about to start doing some work in. And so, just from page one, verse two of the Bible, this opening picture of the Ruach Elohim seems to create the image that the Ruach isn't just the wind or just a breath, but some kind of personal energizing force that's about to act in the world as God's about to speak um, creation or this part of creation into existence. So we're gonna pause, step out of the story for a second. You can remember all that you knew and know about the Holy Spirit and open your systematic theology again if you want to. Um, When you hear the word spirit, particularly outside of the context of church, what do you think about? Something invisible. Maybe it has some kind of like personhood, some volition, it has a goal. Maybe you think about like movies or whatever. Maybe spirits that haunt someone or help someone or we think of the word like uh, an old-timey word like a specter watching life happen, messing with people. You think of Ebenezer Scrooge's ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and future. People used to call the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost. Um, Some still do to this day. Noah Gunderson called it Holy Ghost in that song right there. Maybe you think of Casper or Nearly Headless Nick. I don't know. We have a category for what Jesus is because he's a man. He's a human, fully human, in fact, just like us. He's also fully God. But we can conceptualize and visualize what Jesus might look like because we know what humans look like because we are one. And if we're not careful, I think it's possible to um, incorrectly, uh, or maybe avoiding it altogether, but maybe incorrectly conceptualizing the Holy Spirit because that word spirit is weird for us today, especially because we live in a culture of philosophical naturalism. And so, What I wanna do as we return to the scriptures is try to just think, I'm gonna try to just say Ruach, Ruach Elohim or Ruach Yahweh, the spirit of the Lord. Um, Where the scriptures say those words, I'm gonna try to say those even though we'll not do any more Hebrew. Um, But to remember, we're not thinking advanced knowledge of Holy Spirit, we're thinking what has the Bible said about it so far and what we know is it's Ruach Elohim hovering over the waters. One of the next mentions of this Ruach Elohim is actually by Pharaoh in Genesis 41. You don't have to turn there, but Joseph, after being sold into slavery, thrown into prison, has the opportunity to interpret the dreams of the ruler of Egypt. There are some fat cows and skinny cows in this dream and in real life, and Joseph not only tells Pharaoh that the dreams mean that there's some good years with a you know, plentiful harvest coming, but also followed by years of famine. So Joseph interprets this dream to Pharaoh, um, but he also advises Pharaoh on what to do. Joseph has this wisdom and boldness to presume to tell Pharaoh, here's what you should do about your dreams. He suggests saving up these storehouses of food during the good years so that they can survive the bad years. Genesis 41, 37, 38 says that uh, this plan seemed good to Pharaoh And he asks everyone around him, like, can we find a man like this, one in whom is the Ruach Elohim? So this Ruach Elohim, according to Pharaoh, based on what Pharaoh saw, that this Ruach Elohim was in or upon 
Joseph to empower him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and provide Pharaoh with guidance and wisdom. After Joseph is long dead and gone, after his descendants are rescued from Egypt, God delivers them out into this wilderness and he gives them these instructions on this tabernacle, which is like this mobile tent temple system where they were to build for the presence of God to be among them. And God gives Moses two particular people, we're gonna mention one now, two particular people to help him build the stuff. Exodus 31. Yahweh said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Ruach Elohim, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And so here, the Ruach Elohim empowers Bezalel with special skills. And I think the other guy is Oholiab. Special skills, knowledge, craftsmanship. The Spirit of God literally in this moment, sorry, the Ruach Elohim, uh, turned Bezalel into a mason and a jeweler and a carpenter and an artist, which shows just how much God cares about beauty and creativity. They're out in the woods traveling in a camp. Why does this need to be beautiful? <laughs> because God cares about beauty. But more importantly, what God did to make this space beautiful was to fill a man with this Ruach Elohim so that he would be empowered and able to do it. Um, where's Jordan? Are you here? I think you should add on your truck, licensed, bonded, insured, filled with the Ruach Elohim, just so people know that you're one of the good ones, you know? After the people of God had moved into their promised land and failed to drive out the evil people that were there, they began to kind of assimilate into the cultures. They failed to follow Yahweh. They truly became very evil. And so God appointed these people called judges to defeat Israel's enemies and also to call Israel back to be faithful to God. Um, judges like Samson and Gideon, Othniel, Jephthah. The scriptures say that the Ruach Yahweh, the spirit of the Lord, was upon them, or in some language it says it clothed them. Um, it empowered them to do their job as judges and deliverers of God's people. Similar language is used of Israel's kings, particularly Saul and David. At their anointing as the kings of Israel, the scriptures say that the uh, Ruach Yahweh rushed upon them. So far, we've got the Ruach Elohim, Spirit of God, or the Ruach Yahweh, Spirit of the Lord, comes upon someone to energize or empower them for something specific that God wants them to do, a specific role he has for them. Joseph, it was interpreting dreams, providing wisdom and leadership. Bezalel became an expert craftsman. Joshua, we didn't mention him, but he said he was filled with a spirit of wisdom to lead Israel after Moses. The Ruach Yahweh comes on judges to lead Israel out of their rebellion and protect them. The Ruach Yahweh rushed on Israel's kings like Saul and David to give them wisdom and ability to lead Israel. Next would be the wisdom literature. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. We're just gonna look at a few passages. They introduce maybe new angles, but also maybe clarifications on what we've already seen in the scriptures so far. So look at Psalm 33, verse six. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the ruach of his mouth, all their host. Job 33, verse four. The ruach of God has made me. 
The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So I think what was implicit in Genesis 1 is very much explicit now, that the Ruach of God is active uh, in the creation of the world and in the creation and sustaining of mankind. In Psalm 139, verse 7, David says, Where can I go from your Ruach? Where can I flee from your presence? Those two questions, I think, are this like, it's called a synthetic couplet. Like, they're two questions that are basically asking the same exact thing. And so the answer applies to both, and they help explain each other. The implication, the answer is nowhere. We can't, can't get away from God. But the implication is that the Ruach is the presence of God. That if the Ruach is with you, the presence of God himself is with you as well. And that's what David's praising God for in Psalm 139. Psalm 51, similarly, David is pleading with the Lord, do not cast me from your presence or take your holy ruach from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What may have been implicit in Genesis 1 is now explicit. The ruach Elohim is not just exhaled air from God or wind that he causes. It's not merely a force. It is the very presence of God himself. Now the prophets, their job was to call Israel to repentance and faithfulness. Israel, like us, cyclically, repeatedly disobeyed God and failed to live um, the way that he wanted them to live, the way he called them to. Their hearts, um, like ours, apart from Jesus, are fundamentally broken and bent towards rebellion. And so the prophets, filled with the Ruach, Yahweh, they speak the word of Yahweh to the people and they say, among many things, two important things that we'll talk about. First, they said that this Ruach Yahweh would come upon Yahweh's anointed servant, the Mashiach or Messiah. Isaiah is the best picture of this. In chapter 11, he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, someone way down Jesse and David's line. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Ruach of Yahweh will rest on him. The Ruach of wisdom and of understanding, the Ruach of counsel and of might, the Ruach of knowledge and fear of Yahweh, and he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my Ruach on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And then this Mashiach, the Messiah, this anointed one, he says, the Ruach of the sovereign Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind out the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. So this is Isaiah telling us that the Ruach of Yahweh will come upon this anointed servant of God we call Messiah empowering him to bring justice to God's world and giving him wisdom and insight. But the prophets also said something else, that someday God would actually give people a new ruach inside of them so that they could actually follow and obey God because they couldn't before. Two examples of this from Ezekiel and Joel. Ezekiel 36, I will take you out of the nations. They're in exile. God's promising to bring them back. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is kind of that tabernacle imagery of all their 
kind of religious sacrifices they were to do to become clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new ruach in you. I will remove you from uh, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my ruach in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Similarly, Joel prophesies in chapter two, afterward I will pour out my ruach on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my ruach in those days. You guys doing okay? Is it warm and sleepy in here? That's all right. A few hundred years later, a man steps into a river to be baptized by a hippie who lived in the woods and ate bugs. And he was calling people to repent. And after this man was baptized, it says the Ruach Elohim, or in Greek, the Pneuma Thau, descended on him like a dove would float down and flutter down. It descended on him like a dove, and then this voice from heaven booms into the area. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is Jesus being filled, energized with the Ruach Elohim. Later, he's in a synagogue. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads what we just read. Um, in Luke 4, it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and everyone's eyes are fixed on him. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so the prophets have been fulfilled, proven true. Jesus was filled with the Ruach Elohim and empowered to do all the ministry and the work that he did. But Jesus also spoke about this promise that the, other, that the prophets talked about, the other promise about God's people receiving this Ruach themselves. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus promised his disciples that when he left, he would send another helper to them. Another meaning Jesus was their current helper, um, but that one like Jesus would come soon. John 14, he said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. There was like a theme for my understanding of our cultural moment today and our talk about the spirit of God, it's this. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus is killed and then raised, and actually Romans says that it was the Ruach Elohim that raised Jesus from the dead. He then tells his disciples to wait, to stay put in Jerusalem until they are, in a similar language it's used in Judges, until they are clothed with power from on high, until they too are filled with the Ruach of Yahweh. Jesus commissions his disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to go and make disciples. Jesus ascends to heaven, and days later the disciples are in this 
upstairs room in Jerusalem, and then there is a sound that to them sounds like an intense wind. And then some kind of light is emanating from them, resting on them, on each person in the room, and then they begin to speak in different languages. Luke tells us that in this moment, they, the disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is where we'll pause our unfolding of the story, and we'll pick it up next week from Pentecost on and look at what the Holy Spirit um, does through the apostles in the book of Acts um, and what he uh, does in and through the early church, hopefully so that we can see um, what the Spirit maybe should be doing today here in our church. Um, But I want to pause and just process what we've covered so far. I see this, like, collision happening right now, like an an epic crash between the overwhelmingly naturalistic world that we find ourselves in and the clear hope and plan of God to fill people with his ruach, with his invisible, not physical, not natural, energizing, empowering presence. These two realities are at odds with one another. Almost everything about our culture is trying to move us away from acknowledging spiritual realities. At least not any spiritual being like having any kind of authority or power in our life. But almost everything about the scriptures paints the story of a God who is moving toward us in the form of a real spiritual being, a ruach. Ruach Elohim is not an intuition or a gut feeling that you have. It's not your conscience. It's not a mindfulness or a breathing exercise to like help you when you're stressed or angry. Ruach Elohim is the very personal presence of God um, who has or, or wants to come upon you and fill you and energize you and empower you to become the person that he wants you to be, which is like Jesus. He wants to fill you like he did Joseph and Bezalel and Gideon and David and like Jesus. The Ruach Elohim is the God who wants to breathe in you, energize you, fill you with courage and the ability to love and serve and enjoy God. The Ruach Elohim is also actually consistently, constantly pointing, redirecting our gaze back to Jesus reminding us of who Jesus is and what he has done, the victory that he has won for us and on our behalf. I have a a fear and a hope. My fear is that we may sometimes let our culture cause us to relegate the things of the spirit to the corners of our lives, keeping it hidden away a little bit from a watching naturalistic world, our coworkers, our neighbors, friends or family who don't believe that we do, But my hope, um, if we cannot let that happen, that we might actually um, unleash or unlock like a full potential of what the Ruach Elohim can do in us and through us as individual people and as a church family. Let's pray. God, I ask that as we feel and hear the wind outside right now, 
that you also would fill us afresh with your ruach, with your empowering and energizing, life-giving presence. So Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here. We're grateful that you are here, and though we may not address you much, not as often as we might, would you receive our praise? Would you allow us to commune with you, to talk with you, to experience you in this place as we lift up the name of Jesus? We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.